0: The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Well, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 4 this evening in just a moment. And I'm looking forward to getting into a text that doesn't have anything confusing in it. Um, the truth is, as we look at 1 Peter 4 this evening, we are going to get very clear instruction on how to live the Christian life. You could look at these verses we'll look at tonight in 1 Peter and say that this is basically a summation of what we need to do as Christians. How do we live between one another? How do we treat one another? How do we serve properly? How do we um, interact? And what's our relationship with God like? How often should we be praying? And and what does that look like? So we'll see all these things here in these verses in 1 Peter 4. They're so instructive and so helpful. And so I pray tonight that you will listen and allow the Spirit of God to work in your heart. And help him to show you what, what parts of your lives you need to be working on. I think we all have some. I know as I studied these verses this week, it was just very clear to me that, yes, okay, these are things that I know, these are things that I've been trying to do, and these are things that I definitely can be doing better. So I pray tonight that that's what God does in your, your heart and life as well. Uh, last week, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter drew our attention to the fact that choosing to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord will put us in the crosshairs of the world in which we live. If we choose to allow God to be our judge and say, I'm going to live for God, I'm going to do what God wants me to do with my life, then you're going to have people that look at your life and think you're crazy. You're going to have people that look at your life and condemn you for it. Condemn you for your beliefs. Because darkness never likes light. And the problem with the church is not that we're offending too many people. certainly There are times that the church offends people unnecessarily. But the problem with the church, I think, is that we are not like light like we ought to be. We're not willing to live godly in a culture that is so ungodly. And so we need to step up to the plate and say, God is my judge. I'm going to live for him. That doesn't mean being unkind and unloving to people. It means just the opposite. But it also means standing for truth. And 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 sharing and proclaiming the truth of the gospel. This week, Peter Nell tells us how we live for the glory of God in the time we have left. So, we'll begin reading at First Peter chapter four, verse seven. But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Talk about dramatic, isn't he? But the end of all things is at hand, right? The end is near. Now, what is he talking about? Is he talking about the end of your life? Probably not. I think here what he's talking about is the end of the world or the coming of Christ is at hand. Now, we might think for a moment that Peter got this wrong, but I want you to consider, in light of eternity, the 2,000 years that have gone past, it's very short amount of time. We could still very seriously say the end is at hand. Why? Because the next thing that happens is Christ returns. Right? We're not waiting for a new age. We're not waiting for Christ to come and do something else before His final return. We're waiting for Christ to come back. That's it. And so He says the end is at hand. And based on that truth. There are certain ways that a Christian must live, certain things that a Christian must do. He begins telling us what they are. He says, be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. We might think that what Peter's doing is he's telling us two separate things to do and then saying also you should pray. But what he's actually doing is be sober and watch are two things that you must do so that your prayer is right. So in our King James, we have a comma after the word sober. It shouldn't be there. The words sober and watch both are speaking about so that we pray. We're, we're being sober and we're watching unto prayer for the purpose of prayer. And that's really important for us to understand because what, what Peter's trying to do is he's trying to say, in light of Christ's imminent return, we need to be thinking right. We need to be sober-minded in our right mind, self-controlled. In our mind. We need to be sober and be watching. The, same, it's almost, the word is almost synonymous with the word sober there. It's just paying attention. Being on guard. Right? Now those two things m- match very well with Christ is coming. So think the right way. Okay, don't get so easily influenced by our culture. Don't get so easily influenced by the passing philosophies of the world. Christ is coming back, the end is near, and we're doing those things under prayer. What would you do, how would you think, if you knew Christ was returning tomorrow? If you you knew that tomorrow was the day Christ was coming back, what would you do? I think a lot of us would have really good answers, right? We We would preach the gospel to our neighbors and to our family. We would spend the day praying and asking God to forgive us and making sure that that relationship is right. So we meet him. It's all cool, right? We don't have anything that we've just left unconfessed. We probably have many good answers. Do you know what? Martin Luther was asked this question. And he said, I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. That seems like a very strange response, doesn't it? But do you know what he was saying? What he's saying is, I live every day. As if Christ is coming back. And so do you know what I would do if tomorrow he was coming back? I would do the same things that I need, my normal duties that I need to do today. Because I should be living every day with the mind that Christ's return is imminent. That it's near. And so these two verbs help us put us in the right mind for prayer. Because when we're being sober, when we're thinking rightly, when we're thinking about the fact that this world is not our final destination, that this world is passing, and that our king is coming back, we are ready to pray properly. Right? It changes, first of all, our need for prayer. We see a desperate need for prayer when we know that this is, this is not it. Right? That there's more, that, that Christ is coming, that we're going to meet him soon. We see a desperate need for prayer, and we see how we should pray. Maybe the chief concern of our prayers would not be our comfort. If we knew Christ was coming back tomorrow, we wouldn't say, Lord, if you just give me a new car, or if you just give me a nicer house, or if you just give me something that will make my life more comfortable, take away whatever you've put in my life, that you've probably put in my life to help me become more holy. Take that away so that I can have more comfortable in the last day that I'm alive. Then we would we would certainly see the ridiculousness of a prayer like that. But because we think Christ's return is far off in the future, that we have our whole life to live and that we never need to worry about his return or the fact we don't think about the fact that this life is short, then we pray for things that that are kind of frivolous. And so he's saying, think right thoughts so that you pray and you pray the right way. Verse number eight. And above all things, so even greater than your need to be sober and to watch unto prayer. Above all things, have fervent, intense, passionate charity or love among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Of first importance, have intense or unceasing love for one another. And when he says one another, he's not speaking about our love for the world. He's not speaking about our love for the lost. He's speaking here specifically about our love for believers in Christ, for the church. This is important for us to understand. It's not because Paul doesn't think that we shouldn't love the world. Certainly we should. Sorry, Peter. Peter has spoken in the past about the things that we do so that that people will know Christ and God will be glorified in them knowing him. And so he wants us to be evangelists. But... The problem is the church can never be the light that it's supposed to be until we learn to love one another, right? Until we learn the importance of loving each other, we will never be effective at at reaching our culture. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. It's by this thing. So until the church does the job they're supposed to do. I loved how Pastor actually talked about this this morning. He put the onus on the church that, hey folks, if you are a visitor here, you should be able to look around and see people loving each other. Do you know what that means we need to do as a church? We, should, we need to make sure we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And of first importance is to love one another. He goes on and he says that this love will cover a multitude of sins. And commentators disagree on exactly what he's talking about. Is he saying that because the love of Christ covers a multitude of sins, you should have love for one another? I don't think so. I think what he's saying here is that forgiving one another and covering a multitude of sins is axiomatic to love. That it's a necessary component of love. That sacrificial agape love does not exist. Until there is this this willingness to forgive and cover multitude of sins. We like to think we love each other until we're wronged by another person. And then we find different people to love. That's a problem, right? Because what what love is, is saying, I love you. I've chosen to love you. Not that you're lovable. Not that that I must love you. And I must have these intense feelings of compassion inside of me. But I've chosen to to practice love toward you. And part of that, a necessary part of that, is forgiving you. There will never be unity in a church until this kind of love is present. You know why? Because we're all sinners. All of us. And so we're always going to sin against one another. And unless we have a group of people that says, I know you're going to sin against me and I'm still going to love you. And I'm going to forgive you then we, we don't have a church that can ever have unity and peace. This, this love, it does not forsake any type of church discipline. It's, it's not saying, yeah, we always cover sin. No, part of love is actually stepping in when people are continually going the wrong way. There's a long discussion we could have about what forgiveness is and when it occurs. But this attitude of forgiveness, willingness to forgive a repentant sinner, must always be present. Within the church. Here Peter is borrowing from Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12. That says hatred stirs up strife. But love covereth all sins. See the opposite of that? The opposite of love that covers sins. Is a hatred that stirs up strife. That's what's what's wrong with so many churches. Why does everybody seem to hate each other? Because they can't forgive. Because they don't love. And it stirs up strife. In 1 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul tells us that charity is not easily provoked. It thinks no evil. Don't be quick to think evil of your brother. Don't be quick to judge them. Don't be quick to assume wrong motives. Let's cover a multitude of sins. The church is filled with sinners. If we don't have sin covering love, we will never have peace and unity. Verse number 9. It says, use hospitality to one another without grudging. Here I thought initially it's just like, yeah, you, you should serve one another without complaining. Certainly we should serve one another without complaining. But the word hospitality there is a very specific word that's speaking about fond of serving guests. Fond of having guests in your house and serving them. In the Old Testament, the Jews, in Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, and Deuteronomy 14, 29, are commanded to be hospitable to strangers. That means they were commanded to give them food, to give them shelter, to give them clothing. Okay, that's, that's a very, uh, I mean, quite quite a command, right? Somebody, somebody you don't know comes in, and they're friendly to you, and they're friendly to um, Israel, then you should be f- um, friendly to them. You should be hospitable toward them. In the New Testament, Jesus commended his followers Who did this? He said that if you are serving other people and being hospitable toward them, it's as if you're serving me. So we know as believers, this is something that we shouldn't be surprised is commanded of us. In the New Testament world, Christians would travel, and when they traveled from one city to another, they relied very heavily on Christian hospitality. Um, the only other option was go to go to an inn that was more like a brothel. So in order for them not to stay in a brothel, they had to, to find a Christian church who would love them and, and accept them into their house and eat with them and, and share their clothes and share what they had. So this was this was just essential for the gospel initially to be able to go forth as Christians went from one city to another to teach and to preach and to share the gospel. <clears throat> one of the difficulties with our age is that this type of hospitality is very rarely required. It's not required of us very often. But that doesn't mean it's not important. Just because you're not put in a situation where there is a Christian that desperately needs you to make them a meal, or to have them for your house, or to have fellowship with them, just because you don't have to do that, doesn't mean you shouldn't do that. I think that's still a very important part of the church. I think that the fellowship of believers is something that maybe is, is lacking in a lot of churches. We shouldn't be eating together. We should be willing to have each other over for meals. That, this shouldn't be something that's like, okay, once a year I'll invite one family over. right? That's how we develop Christian love. You, you realize that you don't develop Christian love just by sitting next to somebody in a church service? No, you got to spend time together. You have to talk about the Lord together and share meals together and serve together. All of those things are essential for developing the Christian love that we're called to have for our brothers and sisters within our church. But what's interesting about this is that Peter is not limiting this love to believers within your denomination. He's not limiting the love to believers within your church. Now, certainly, that's where we start. That's the most obvious place to start. But I think what we do sometimes is we just we give ourselves a pass for treating other churches and other believers poorly because they don't just agree with this this certain doctrine that we we deem important. A lot of times, it's about last things. It's about eschatology, all right. So we we have certain things that probably aren't. Of utmost importance. And we just write other believers off. Peter here is writing to the strangers that are scattered abroad. He's writing to believers all over the place in Asia. And so this is not just for one church. This is for believers. And what I'm saying here is when when we're thinking about how we relate to believers that don't go here, we still love them. right? We're still kind to them. We show, still show them grace. And maybe we even share a meal together with them. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, without complaining, without this, I mean, what use is it if you say, fine, God, I'll serve you. This just stinks. But I have to do it, so I'll do it. God doesn't want somebody who gives grudgingly. God doesn't want somebody who serves grudgingly. God wants those who will cheerfully serve him, cheerfully open their house. And so this is what Peter expects of us in light of Christ's imminent return. He goes on in verse 10. As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God gives, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter tells us that since we have received a gift from God, we should serve one another with that gift. The first thing, the first thing we need to realize, and I think this is implied in the text, that any gift you have is from God. We like to think that we own our gifts. We like to think that that this was just something that was, uh, somehow we conjured up in our DNA. But step back a little bit and realize that whatever good thing that you have, anything that you do well, any of your talents and abilities, all of that is from God in the first place. And so it's not given to you just to use for your own glory, for your own good. It's given to you for a purpose. And so he begins saying, you've received a gift. It's, it's given to you. Now use it to minister to one another. He says, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Meaning, what we're doing is we're stewarding a gift. So this is a gift that belongs to God, and we're, it's given to us for a time, So that we can use it for what our Lord has asked us to use it for. Namely, to serve one another. We are to be stewards of the grace that God has given us. And then he gives an example. He says, if you're speaking, let him teach us the oracles of God. In other words, if you're speaking, don't just conjure up your own philosophy. Don't just come up with your own own ideas. Speak the words of God. Take your job seriously. Now, this is very convicting to me, but there are many other people in this church that have the opportunity to open the word. In Sunday school class, um, with children, with small groups, with with just even one-on-one with believers as you're discipling them. And as you do that, as you open up the word of God, take your job very seriously. Speak the words of God. You don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? God has given us truth. And so let's just clearly teach the truth that he's given us. People need truth. They like entertainment, but they need truth. And so let's give truth. He says, if any man serves, let him do it as the ability which God gives. In other words, don't serve in your own strength. If you're serving another person physically, then ask God for strength to do it. I don't think we do this very much. I don't think that when... When we have a job to do, some kind of physical task to do for another person, that we first go, God, give me strength to do this. But he says we should do that. Why? So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then I love Peter here because I think his personality comes through that he says the name Jesus Christ and he can't contain himself. So he's, he's, he's giving us all these things we ought to do. You need to, to teach. And if you're teaching, teach the words of God. And if you're serving, serve In the strength of God, and and whatever you're doing, do it for the glory of God, through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and glory and dominion forever and ever. He can't contain himself. The praise just bursts forth. It's a doxology, right? And so, Peter tells us, of the manifold gifts that have been given, the multicolored gifts, it's like every person in the church has its own fingerprint of grace. And each one is unique. And we all have one. And we're to use the fingerprint of grace that he's given us to serve his church. The purpose for all of it is so that God may be glorified. The purpose for all things, it all goes back to this. It doesn't matter where you are in the Bible. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. The ultimate purpose for you and for me and for all. Everything we have and for everything that is, is for the glory of God. And so if we would just recognize what our lives are for and live for what we've been created for, then we'd be so much better off. We would we would all of a sudden realize that this just makes sense. It just makes sense for the creation to glorify the creator. To do what we are created for. And so here Peter gives us the summary of the Christian life And it hits on what we might call the triad of the Christian life. These are three points that I think are essential in every believer's life. What I want you to do tonight is we're going to look at each one of these things briefly. I want you to assess your own life in this area, in each one we talk about. Okay. So think about every area and say, this is how I'm doing in this area. And then at the end of tonight, I want you to just pick one. I don't want you to work on all three. I don't want you to say, well, I was a six here, and a four here, and an eight here, and so I'm going to try and make all of them a ten by next week. Pick the four, and then work on that. Okay, so look at all these three things. Okay, you have to pick one, though. You can't just be like, I'm ten. Every time. Maybe you are. I don't think so. though. I don't know too many tens. Number one, <clears throat> prayer. Number one, prayer. Peter tells us to be sober, to be of a clear mind, to remove the inebriating influence of our sin and the ungodly philosophies of our culture, and to think right thoughts in light of the fact that Christ is coming back, we cannot be double-minded. We can't be serving two masters. We, we can't be trying to serve the Lord and accomplish his glory and also accomplish everything we can for ourselves. If the choice at some point has to be made. Are we followers of Christ or followers of of Yourself, followers of sin. Our thoughts should bear in mind the coming of our Lord. We must be self-controlled in our minds. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8, Paul writes, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. We sometimes think that our minds, our thoughts just kind of flow and that we don't really have control over them, that they just come and go as they please. The Bible paints a completely different picture. Paul says, find good things and think about those things. Think right thoughts. We are told to bring every thought into the obedience of Christ. And so when you find your mind going the wrong direction, when you find yourself um, just thinking about your own ambitions and or or dwelling on some kind of sin, then stop. Then bring that thought to the obedience of Christ. Remember that Christ is there with you. Why do we do these things? So that we will pray. I don't think I don't think we We'll ever pray like we should until we start to do this, until we start to to take control of our thought life. When our minds and our hearts are held captive to the world, we will never sense our desperate need to run to our transcendent Father. Right? When we are so caught up in our minds in this world, we don't go to God. We don't go outside this. We just think about these things. And at best, when you do, it's grudgingly. It's like, yeah, okay, I I need to pray. I haven't prayed all day. It's time for me to go sleep. I'm a Christian. I know I'm supposed to do this, and so let's get the prayer thing done. And we never say it like that, but that's our attitude sometimes. And if we are thinking, I'm here to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who's coming back to rule and reign, and he could come at any time, our minds are right. We're not focused on all the things in this world, and so we go to God on a regular basis. We pray. It's not a forced thing. It's not, It doesn't have to be this habit we force into us. It's it's a joy. So we w- will pray when we think rightly. So I think it's for what we pray, and then also so that we pray effectively. Have you ever heard someone pray, and it just seemed like a really trite prayer? I mean, you just heard them praying, like, well, that was weak. Um, every night we pray with our kids before they go to bed. And um, sometimes I pray, sometimes they all pray, sometimes we all pray. But there are times that, that I pray, and then they pray, and I'm just so impressed with their prayer. It's like, wow, they, they, they hit the nail on the head there. They, they prayed the gospel, they prayed for other people, and there are other times they pray for toys. <laughs> like, really? You don't have enough toys? Or they pray that the school bus will be canceled due to snow. And I'm like, "Ah, I don't know what to do in that case because should I commend them for having faith and praying or should I discipline them for praying such a foolish prayer in front of their father? Um, (laughs) The problem is, I mean, kids are kids kids and I expect them to have prayers like that and it's fine. But as we grow in Christ, I think what we should realize is that our, our prayers do need to change a little bit. We need to stop praying so much for today's comfort and even for others. Uh, we, it almost seems like a kind thing to do, but, but a lot of times what we need to pray for for people is that God will give them grace and strength to, to sustain them through the trial. That God has a purpose and a plan for the trial, and so don't always remove it. Just give them what they need to get through it. Those are the types of prayers that I think they truly glorify God. God, do what you're doing and help me to do what, what you want me to do in my life. God, I pray that you would build your kingdom. Help me to be a part of that. Help me to, to follow your rule and reign on this earth. Help me to be a testimony for those around me. Help me to have boldness and courage. That was what Paul asked other people to pray for of him. This is the Apostle Paul, who's the most bold and courageous man that I think you'd ever meet. And he says, Pray for me that I'll have boldness. So those are the things that we ought to be praying for. God, pray that you give me an opportunity to, to witness to the friend or to the coworker that I've failed to witness to. Give me opportunity to just speak truth into them. Don't, don't go and just try and force it. Like, I heard a sermon, and so now I have to give you the whole thing tomorrow. Start praying and asking God to help you. Giving you opportunities. <clears throat> the worst thing is when I'm praying by myself, and I think, man, that was trite. <laughs> and I'm sure you've done that before. But I really think that if we'll get our minds right, that we will pray prayers that are, not only will we be praying more often, but we will be praying effective prayers. And so how is your prayer life this evening? Number two, we must love. We must pray and we must love. Love is not an emotional feeling or an ethereal concept. Love is concrete. It can be measured and it can be seen. Love is us acting purposefully in a way of love toward another person. Love is willing to forgive. Love is selfless. Love covers sins. It seeks peace and unity rather than strife. The church ought to be marked by love. And until it is, we will never have the influence we ought to have in our community. We will never be attractive. If the church is just a gathering of people, who act like the same gathering of people in every other club out there, we will never, we'll never be, we'll never be attractive. This is the amazing thing about the church. You have any other club in the world, and they are all drawn to that club because they share something in common. They share a love for golf, or a love for fitness, or a love for books, or a love for something, right? And oftentimes, they can find a way to get along around the thing that they love. And here in the church, this is a a community that God calls out from people of all nations, of all races, of all status, um, economic, and um, just every kind of person is here, right? We don't have books in common, or maybe one book in common. We don't have a love for books, or a love for hockey, or a love for whatever, What we have, and the only thing we have, is the gospel. We have the gospel in common. And the gospel is that Jesus Christ loved us so much that he died for us. He died in my place. He died in your place. And so when we come together, we all sit here as people for whom Christ died. So the the, the only thing that bonds us together is the love of our Savior. It makes perfect sense then that we all have a reason to love each other because Christ loved us and Christ loved that person, right? And so, yes, we're very different. But until we're a group of people that demonstrate real love toward each other, until we can't learn to get over those squibbles and squabbles that that divide churches, they're so silly sometimes. Until we're truly unified in the gospel, then we will never be attractive. And uh, I wonder what God thinks as he looks out <clears throat> over his church and he sees his children for whom he died fighting with each other about such stupid things. But we do. And so we must show love to each other. Number three, we must serve. God has placed you here in this church for a reason. He has given you a gift for a reason, for a purpose. You have one of the multicolored gifts of grace. And so use it. So use what God has given you to build up this church. Paul drew this picture of, this analogy of a body for us in 1 Corinthians. And it was, it's just a great picture. You can't improve on this. We are all a part of the body of Christ. We all have a role to play. It is foolishness when one part of the body wants to be another part. And so don't do that. Don't just decide all of a sudden you want to be the soloist if you can't sing. Right? Don't decide all of a sudden you want to work in nursery if you just hate kids and you are terrible with them. Okay? What you need to do is you need to figure out how God has gifted you because he has gifted you. You, we all have a gift of grace. How can you use that to build up the body? It doesn't even always need to be in a certain program of the church. There are some people in the church. What they do is they write letters and they encourage people and they are encouraging. Some people make meals and, and, and not always solicited. It's not always because somebody called you and said, you, will you make a meal for this person? Sometimes they just do it, right? But we all need to figure out what things we do well, what gifts we have. If you show mercy to, to people well, then I thank God for you because I don't. Okay, That's something I need to work very hard on at my life. But some of you just do it and you have the gift to do it. And so don't, don't squash that gift because people in our church need people that will show mercy to them. Right. If you give well, then give well. Whatever it is that God has gifted you to do, find a way to put that gift into use. Serve people because that gift is not given to you for your own bidding, for your own desires. It's given to you for the, the building up of the body of Christ, for the church. Find a place to serve. Find a place to sacrifice. Recognize that, it, that necessarily in the word service, is sacrifice. And we don't really serve people until we're sacrificing for them. And so serving might require some sacrifice on your behalf. Be ready and willing to do that. And finally, do it for the glory of God. Peter's doxology in verse 11 is a wonderful reminder to all of us what our attitude should be as soon as we think about what Christ has done. As soon as we think about who Christ is. See, Peter walked with him, but it wasn't until after Christ had died and resurrected and gone to heaven and and Peter received the Holy Spirit that this seemed to be his constant response. He he will do this again in chapter 5, verse 11. Just in a few short verses, he won't be able to contain himself again. This is Peter, when he thinks of Christ, that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think that's a great place for us to end tonight. Let's live our lives like we believe that we want Christ to be praised by all people, that he want, that we want him to have our highest praise, that we want him to have dominion or his kingdom to reign forever and ever. Let's live like we believe that he's coming back, that that kingdom will be set up here on earth. Um, how well do you pray? How well do you love? How well do you serve? Think about these areas. Think about what you could work on. Pick one. I I know you can probably find, I know I look at it and I go, here's the three things that I need to work on. All three of them. Pick one and then see how you can improve on that this week. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight, Lord. I thank you for... um, Your love for us, I thank you for your word that is so clear and practical for us, that you've laid out for us what it looks like when we live in light of Christ's imminent return. God, I pray you'd help us to be of right mind, to keep our minds sober, to not be influenced so heavily by our culture around us, by the desires of our flesh. But God, that we'd control our minds, that we would focus them on you, and we'd think right thoughts, true thoughts. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to to pray. I pray you'd help us to go to you um, and pray in ways that bring you glory. And God, I pray you'd help us to love each other and love sacrificially and love in a way that um, is a decision that we've made and not just something we feel. And God, I pray you'd help us to serve. Help us to use whatever gift you've given us today um, to build up the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that we'd realize that the church is not just to be run by pastors and have everybody else come and listen. But the church is a a living body in which we all play an essential role. Help us each to do our part, Lord. Help us to, to do what you've called us to do for your glory. We thank you, Lord, that you are awesome, that you're great, that you're powerful, and that someday you are coming again to rule and reign. And it might be tomorrow and it might be years from now, but God, I pray you'd help us to live in light of your imminent return. We love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.